He scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. And welcome. This is Racing with Bruno on the Racing with Bruno podcast. Got a great lineup for you today. It's Pegasus week. Um, so we're going to welcome in Corey Barbarito, a bright, young assistant trainer for Dallas Stewart. He's going to tell us a little bit about his horses into the Pegasus, Title Ready, and Chess Chief, and a little bit more. We even talk about uh, his hot maiden that uh, ran second on, I'm going to ask him about that, Vinco. We're going to find out more about him. Um, Pete Renato, uh, who's heading out to the NHC, his handicapping strategy for the big weekend coming up uh, to determine the handicapping champion and uh, Eclipse Award-winning handicapper of, of the year. And also, we're going to talk to Matt Stahl, who is covering the Baffert hearings in New York at the uh, against the NYRA. So we got a lot to go, and let's go find Corey here in South Florida. Well, we found Corey Barbarito, and he's on the beach somewhere in South Florida. Hey, Corey, how do you like South Florida so far? Hey, Bruno, yeah, I definitely can't complain uh, after being in cold and wet uh, New Orleans. Um, this is definitely a, a nice little treat, and you know, we're happy to be here, absolutely. Um, and thank you for having us having me on. Well, you you didn't bring one. You brought two. You brought Title Ready and Chess Chief for the Pegasus. What went into that uh, decision of bringing two? Yeah, we definitely kind of came at them with a, with a couple of bullets. Um, no, it was it was more so just a Title Ready was 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 the first. Uh, um, he was the first call to go, and I was uh, Mr. Fifty. That's that's what we wanted to do, and that's what Mr. Fifty wanted. And so he was always kind of dead set bound that we were going to go. And then um, initially our plan with Chess Chief was uh, the Louisiana Stakes, and that was going to be against Mandaloon and Midnight Bourbon over there, and they ran a hell of a race. And we just – and going into that race, and once we kind of figured out who was going to be running in this race, and we just made the call, Dallas made the call to make the switch. And so we scratched out of that race, and now we're here with both, um, just with the way the – structure is over here and hopefully like the way the pace scenario possibly will be you know we think we'll have a shot with both and they're both doing great and and we really don't see a reason why not to come so and Dallas has proven many times in the past that it's, it'll work out so and Dallas has had success in the in the uh in the Pegasus back in 2020 he ran sec uh, I believe actually did he run second here uh, yeah, it was, it was second with uh, with seeking the soul, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and that would have been in uh, 2019, not 2020. He finished seventh in 2020, but um, in his final start of his career. But um, that day on on January 26, 2019, you ran second to City of Life uh, with seeking the soul, and he was a huge price. How do you stack up? title ready and chess chief to a horse like seeking the soul. You know, it's, it's tough to, to stack them up just simply in regards. I mean, uh, well, it is and it isn't. Uh, uh, seeking the soul, he was coming off of like a phenomenal race. And this is when I just kind of began with Dallas. Um, and he was coming off of that, that uh, Breeders' Cup dirt mile. And uh, unless he did run in the Clark, but, 
he was coming off of just some solid races over there at Churchill, and and they made they made the call, and he was I mean he was game dead set, um, and unfortunately he maybe shouldn't even have been that big of a price. Um, and then just comparing them to Title Ready and Chess Sheep, Chess Sheep's training training phenomenal right now, and he's he's coming off of a great race again. Obviously he loves the fairgrounds, and we I mean we do we just we've always believed these horses are at that almost at that level, if not at that level, and. And sometimes just the way the pace scenario works out, uh, especially with kind of with both of them, how they both run, um, it just it, it'll help us out a lot. And like Chess Chief, he ran in the Jockey Club a few few races back, um, and he and he ran pretty good. And they just they did they the pace never backed up. They never really went too fast on the front end. And he for a Grade One, he ran a ran a hell of a race. Um, and then same thing with Title Ready over the last even over last year when he ran at Fairgrounds, he ran a big race, and then he kind of. We went to Dubai, and obviously it didn't work out that the way we wanted, and so he took some time off, and yeah, and so we're here. Um, they're just, I mean, they're, they're two very well-bred horses, and some mischief, um, more than ready, and we think they have a shot. You know, they've proved they've given us every every, every instance that that they do have a shot. And um, your experience uh, with Dallas, um, you're uh, relatively still a very much a young man who's really stepped up and, and, and really found a home with Dallas Stewart. Tell us a little bit about how it is to work for Dallas. Like I tell people, and that's kind of my first thing I always say, there's a reason I, my Dallas is the first person I've ever worked for, and I haven't gone anywhere since. Um, he's Even when I, when I started at UofL um, a few years back, I got in touch with actually Gary Palmazano, and he got me in touch with Dallas. And he said, when can you start? We talked for about three minutes. He said, where can you start? I said, tomorrow. And that was it. And now four or five years, four five years later, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And it's, it's, it's been, a, he, he's just, he's a mentor, you know, um, he's, he, he, he does a lot more teaching outside of just the horses. I mean, he's, it's business. It's how to, how to act. I remember he would tell me things like, you need your, he said, you're really good in person. He said, you're about a four out of five in person when you're talking to people, but you're about a one out of five on the phone. He said, you need to get better on the phone. And, <laughs> and, and it's just a, a lot of different examples of that. And he's just, he'll drill it into you. Um, and it's definitely, it was never easy. And especially while I was in school, it was never easy. He's not, he's not, if, and he, like we, like he said multiple times, if you're not going to be willing to get better, then I just, I can't work with you. And, and that's, but, and I think that's how it has to be everywhere. If you if you don't want to get better, um, he, he expects you to just try to get better every day. And just, if you make a mistake, just, don't try not to let it happen again and just always try to improve off of what you did the day before. Um, and he's just, you know, I, 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 it's one of the best experiences I honestly have ever had. And it's kind of shaped me over the last few years working with Dallas. Um, and I don't have a, you know, I don't have a single regret since moving because I was at LSU for a couple of years and I just made the jump and being in this barn with the people that have taught me and they've, I mean, they've taught me everything and his crew, he's, he's had a crew for the last, um, God, 10, 15 years, a lot of these guys have been around, and, and there's a reason for that. He takes care of his people. He really does. Um, you're from Louisiana, am I right? Yes, sir. What part of Louisiana are you from? I'm from Metairie, Louisiana, so about five minutes outside, five, ten minutes outside of Fairgrounds, um, about ten minutes. I know where yeah. that is. I lived yeah. there for six months right off of, uh, I want to say Veterans uh veterans boulevard is that is that what it's what the name of that yeah uh, where they have all the mardi gras yeah yeah there's a great po' boy place right there too great po' boy place Uh, that's one thing 
that's one thing. Dallas, you know, he kind of taught me how to go to Luisa's. Am I saying that uh, correctly? Uh, I'd say I'd go with Luisa's. That's how we that's how we say Luisa's. But I mean, it's but I would, however you pronounce it, the food's always going to be the same. It'll always be delicious. That's for sure. Yeah, it's, right it's, it's, it's one thing track. I miss. It's one thing I miss about not not being able to uh, not going to Louisiana every year is that uh, the the, the poor boy shrimp they have there's the poor boy barbecue shrimp is just phenomenal and it's not the barbecue people think it is but uh but i know that's the one thing about dallas he knows his food doesn't he he does he does he does and when it comes to food he's not he doesn't mess around um he's not cheap on the food and and that's how it should be and if you're from new orleans pretty much nobody wants to be cheap on the food um they go you know there's there's plenty of good delicious places and even some of these just the smaller places pretty much everywhere you go in new orleans is you can't beat it, um, and it's a big difference. That's what I was kind of when I'm in Kentucky. It's very rare that I'll eat seafood. I just kind of wait till I get to wait till I get home. It's just a, it's a big difference. So, yeah, and 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 also I think that's why me and Dallas have kind of I've grown so well with that barn. Is that that's just he's got that New Orleans mentality as well, and just personalities kind of aligned, and you know it's history ever since. And I met you about three years ago at Saratoga, and you were just starting out with Dallas. And um, last year, Dallas entrusted you to, to handle the Saratoga Springs, and you had a, had a pretty good Saratoga Spring uh, string. Yeah, Saratoga yeah. Spring string. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, what was your experience like handling those horses on your own? So and I was there like when I met you a few years back, and I was just when I was really learning. But this this year, this past year, this past summer, that was I mean that was a, a big definitely a learning experience. And I remember the first week just bringing one or two horses over and just kind of seeing how everything worked. I said, man, we're not this is we're not in the we're in the big leagues now. Um, this like we can't mess around. Um, just again with the best of the best. Um, it was it could not have been a better experience for for me to be by myself over there just for learning. It for education purposes, I suppose, um, and to be with that quality of horses that we have. And I think overall, at the, we ran pretty well, and we ran in some big, big races. Um, and it was, a, I mean, an incredible experience for me. I would, and I thank Dallas, you know, all the time for just for allowing me to be in these spots. Um, because it, and it's just these kind of experiences just only can, can make you better and just kind of pay attention and see what's going on and see how the big leagues do it. And, I mean, you know, you are the big leagues now, Corey. You're yeah. one of the, the, the young trainers that I call the future of the game. And, by the way, I have to tell you, I've known Dallas quite a few years now. You sound like Dallas. And I'm not talking about your Cajun accent either. I'm, uh, you, you very much sound like Dallas. He's really uh, made an imprint in you. Um, and there's a lot of young trainers. There's a Ken Sweezy's. There's the Norm Cassie's. There's you. Um, uh, how do I, do you ever stop and think about, you know, what my future, the future in the game is, what I want to do, and or are you just soaking everything in right now and not worrying about the future? It, you know, I try, I try every day to just, just like you said, soak it all in, um, and just, and just enjoy every day for how it is, and just try to learn something every day for what it is. But in the same sense, yeah, I do, I definitely think about the future a little bit. Um, and just kind of what I want to do. And, you know, and it's the path I'm going right now would be to start training eventually one day on my own. And at the moment I'm 
I'm content with Dallas. I mean, we're just we got something going, I think, and just try to see it through. But and after that, that I mean, there's a few things you know within the industry that I'd like to just at least be a part of. Whether it's I mean, hopefully to be a part of the training training game as well as just see, find my way to see if I could try to do some improvement inside the sport. You know, I think there's some levels of improvement um, to just to gain more fans and more um, to just grow this audience a little bit and. So we'll see. I mean, I definitely think about the future, but for right now, for whatever else I want to do in the future, this is, I do believe that kind of the spot I'm in right now and kind of soaking up where I'm at and how the, the backside and just the day in, day out of what we do, what horsemen do on the backside. And I think that has to be, a no, that has to be known if I, if you ever wanted to do something else within the industry. Um, so yeah, I definitely think about the future, but in the same sense, I try not to overstress about it because I am, I'm still pretty young and, Trying to just enjoy enjoy all of these experiences that I've been fortunate to to get, you know. Can can you tell everybody uh, how old you are? Yeah, I'm 23, so I'm definitely I'm wow. a baby compared comparatively. You're you're in the Joe but, Burrows age range. I uh, know. You're I in know. the Joe he's Burrows more, age range. He's a little bit more successful than me. He's a little, but I'm I'm trying <laughs> to catch up to him. He's, yeah, he's but, got a little uh, bit more of a following the, than I do. <laughs> The one thing I do want to ask you, and 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 this is, I don't know if this is a tough question to answer. In your years with Dallas now, and you being 23, is there one lesson you have learned in racing that you can share? I'd say, you know, you're going to get. I think it's just you got to just keep on pushing forward. I think that's my biggest – and I think I've learned a lot of lessons. And I think as right now, just the spot that I'm in, I think it's just push forward. I mean, you have a lot of bad days, and you got to just – there's been a, a few times, you know, you just kind of want – you might want to just quit or whatever. And I think you got to take – I mean, take the bad with the good. Um, but you're going to have a lot of bad days, and you just got to keep on – you got to see it through. Um, I think that's – and that's, I think, a lesson that I've learned just kind of within myself. And, of course, I've learned it from the people I'm with, but it's – I mean, when you kind of just, when you get your butt whooped one day here, I mean, there's going to be better days, you know, and it's, you can't get too down on yourself. You kind of just got to move on. Um, and you, but you got to put in the work to do it. And and, that, and sometimes it gets tough when you put in 30 days of just on whatever particular horse and just, it doesn't go your way on the race day. You got to just keep on pushing through. And sometimes the work that you're putting in in May, you don't realize that it pays off in September. Um, and I think things like that, like the little things on, on some of these horses, that this, the, those day in day out things, I think when months down the road, I think that's when it kind of start, pays off more than you would think just within that week. Um, and you got to kind of see the bigger picture with this within this now, industry. Of them. Dallas, Dallas has shown a lot of faith in you, um, which speaks volumes uh, about taking you, sending you out of town with horses. You took Unified Report to Delta Downs, and you took them to Louisiana Downs, I believe. And you're two for two on the road. You took, um, let's see, you you've taken other horses on the road uh, and and done very well. Is that does does Dallas confidence in you um, make you even more uh, bullish about being part of this game and 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 doing things the right way? Because Dallas Stewart does things the right way, doesn't he? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I, anybody I've seen, I mean, he's. There's nobody else I, that I believe, you know, that that does it the right way, um, more so than him. I mean, he's 
you know, he's not going to, he doesn't cut corners. And I mean, it's obviously from his upbringing too, from the Lucas, from the Lucas era and all of that. And you see it within the trainers with the other guys that he's worked with as well. And just, I mean, he doesn't cut corners and he's, you know, he's, he's straightforward. Um, that's, and that's why I've been with him for so long is, I mean, they do it the right way. And that's what a lot of people have told me. They say, this is the right place to learn. Um, and they were correct, you know, um, but in regards to just being bullish on chipping, I mean, obviously I'm going to, you know, um, I make, I'll, make mistakes will be made that like to a degree. Um, but it's always just learn from that. And I've, and I've kind of gained that confidence now off of just being, being young, being, and just kind of having to learn, um, having to learn the right way. And he's always been there to teach me um, and just never let those one or two like little mistakes, just always keep moving forward. Um, and just, you know, and the nerves over the years have kind of starting to lessen up a little bit, but, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be with him. Um, you guys debuted a horse on Saturday named Zinko. Um, can you give us a little bit of uh, your view of of that monster because he ran second, he didn't win, but the no. way he ran, he's a monster. He might be. He might be. <laughs> you know, we're trying not to get our hopes up right now with him. Uh, you know, we he kind of he might have given me a couple of little goosebumps when we when he ran um, just for what he did for breaking. I'm pretty sure he, he was on the rail. Um, I think the couple horses inside of him scratched, and he. I mean, he, he broke all right. He didn't break too sharp, but he kind of got cut off, and he got cut off pretty bad and got dropped back, I would say, about eight, nine lengths, um, maybe a little less. And But he was quite far back. And, I mean, going into the turn, he, you still couldn't even see him on the picture. And just for him, though, just how he maneuvers, just in, and he, he kind of went inside and just in the middle of the pack um, down the stretch and was just maneuvering in between these horses. And the way he did it and the ground he was making up, and I remember I was actually sitting with my dad and we were watching. I thought for sure we're going to get fourth or fifth. He's a good race. We'll definitely – we should be fine next race out. And for him to even jump up to second, yeah, I mean, we definitely have confidence in him. Um, he's a he's a gorgeous. So Yeah, he's kinda, a big – that's yeah. one thing I noticed about him, looking at his sales videos and his two-year-old – and, and um, his, his, uh, his sales video. He is – and especially as a two-year-old at 50 Tipton, Maryland – he is a huge quality road colt, but he is so athletic and light on his feet. Um, it's got to be, I mean, you, you got to be like a proud papa looking at, the, at him coming down the lane like he did on Saturday. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, but there's some horses that have more work that go, go into them than others. And, I mean, we definitely, and all of them have their, their amounts of work, but we, and we definitely – we worked with him, with this horse a lot to get him to to where he needed to be, and I mean we're we're happy that it, it as of now it's worked out, um and just and I and I'm you know yeah like you said you got to be proud, um to to see all that work that you put into a certain horse and just for him to run like that first time out um yeah we're definitely we're excited and just hopefully we just keep him keep him going straight straight forward and we'll see where how we run I'd say a month or so, um. So, and we'll just kind of, as he, as he goes on, once he comes out of this, this race and gets back on the track in a week or two, I'm sure Dallas will kind of start making a little plan with him. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's and that's, that's the one thing I do notice with Dallas. He is not a guy that's going to bring a horse back in three weeks, especially no. the first time starter. He, he usually takes what I call it my, my, my threshold uh, time between races for, for first time starters into second time starters is four to six weeks. Um, th- that's the one thing that I see. And, 
when you guys worked in with Unified Report a number of times, they told me enough to say they think highly of this horse. When you do you and Dallas talk about when you put the horses together to work, and is there certain things that go into those uh, particular uh, partnerships with horses in the morning? Of course, um, yeah, and I'd say, and I'd say, but more so Dallas. He makes makes majority of those calls, but we 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 do talk about it a lot, and just with this horse matchup with this horse, and how would that be? It is uh, like in regards if they are a good workhorse, if they need to go on company, and Vinco is just you know Vinco and Unified Report. That was a pretty solid matchup, and I think that helped Vinco a lot, um, being with a horse like Unified Report, just keeping him honest, and just because Unified Report, he's. I mean, he's no BS. Um, he he ran just okay in the in Lacombe, but he he'll just he'll be fine coming out of that. But that was a solid partnership between those horses. Um, and and you know I do credit that Dallas a lot on that. Um, just how he matches up horses, and I, I learn a lot on how he does it and why he does it. Well, Corey, I want to thank you for coming on board, Corey Barbarito, assistant to Dallas Stewart. I want to tell you, you are a the future of the game. And and I wish you all the luck in the world on Saturday and the Pegasus to you and Dallas and Mr. Fifty and your and your uh, and your owners and uh, I hope to catch up with you soon and uh, thank you for coming on board. Absolutely, Bruno. Thank you for having me and hopefully hopefully we'll see you down here in a few days. So I had a, I had a blast. So thank you so much, Bruno. Well, that's Corey Barbarito. That's that's a young man that you need to keep track of from the Dallas Stewart barn. His assistant, he's been traveling around. He's only 23 years old. Joe Burroughs has got some catching up to Corey. And let's go find Peter Bernardo. He is ready to go to Las Vegas and for the NHC 2022. Peter, are you on board? Yes, Bruno. Thanks for having me. Uh, you, uh, are you ready for the NHC? I'm ready. This is my second one. I, w- I played for the first time in August of last year. Ran middle of the pack, and hopefully we'll perform a lot better this year. But it was definitely a learning experience. That second time out. Yeah, yeah, you know, some, I, I need a race, so hopefully I'll move forward a bunch. But, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some things I'm going to change. I think one thing I changed, one thing I, I, I did last time that didn't work, I was very, very rigid, very structured. I laid out every play over three days from the outset and didn't leave myself a lot of flexibility to adjust and see how tracks were playing and finding opportunities as the day was going on. I think this year I'm going to, you know, kind of look at the mandatories and then otherwise I'm going to stay super flexible. And, you know, if a horse looks real good on, on the track and a gallop before a race, and I, I think there's a marginal contender, but I just think the price is right. You know, those, those are the ones I'm going to use more than stick into my guns the way I did last year. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a lot of races. It's a lot of tracks, you know, it's, it's tough to handicap eight tracks on three consecutive days, but you know, it'll, um, put the time in and hopefully the results will be there. And, and that's something you probably went over your results and took a look at how you performed. Um, interesting going about it in a little bit different way. Now, how have you prepped for this NHC? which really comes back on the heels of one that was, it just seems like you were there the other day. Yeah. So I could tell you, first of all, uh, I played a lot of tournaments the last two to three weeks and I, I made my normal bets, but not quite to the degree that I would 
typically do on a, on a weekend. So I've probably focused 90% of my time on, on just doing a lot of tournaments. And, and I, and I also, I've tried, I've done some tournaments with, you know, 20 or 30 people in it. And then I've played tournaments that have 150 to 200 people in them. And it's really a different approach. You know, I, I played one on Sunday and it had 150 people and only the top two places were getting the prize. And you need to play a lot more aggressively on those days. But when you play more aggressively, you're going to find that a lot of times you'll find a suitable long shot and you're running third a lot, you're running fourth a lot, but you're not actually winning. Where you play the tournaments that have smaller participants, you can kind of grind. You can grind out four to ones. You can grind out five to ones. NHC kind of fits in the middle because it does have a lot of participants, but you're also talking about three days. And you just you kind of want to get points on the board. Even if you're not hitting max horses that are paying $40 or $50, the idea that you can you know come – my goal is come top 20% every day i think if you can come top 20 percent every day that's going to put you in the money on the in the aggregate whereas if you're really up one day and really down one day you're not going to make the cut so you know i was maybe 30 dollars away from making a cut last year and i think if i did things a little bit differently i might have gotten there but um making some adjustments watch I, I watched some tracks this week that are going to be in the tournament that are tracks I normally don't play. One example is Fairgrounds. You know, you have a very strong Fairgrounds product. I followed the Fairgrounds product on Saturday. I've been following a little bit more Oaklawn, a little bit more Laurel. And um, I have, you know, have a good feel for, for it. And just, you, you know, make the smart decision. Hope you get the trips. That's really what this game's about. You know, if we had a camera on what is happening during the podcast, it would absolutely be a top 10 trending on, t- on social media because while I'm talking to you, I have a very mischievous Husky <laughs> who is trying to get into cabinets. He knows that I am here you know, talking to you on the phone and, uh, and on, on online. And he has decided that he is going to take center stage. Uh, I am surprised he has not brought up his squeak, sneaky, squeaky toy again. And here he comes again. So um, it's kind of funny. You know, if people saw what was going on behind the scenes, people say to me, Bruno, why don't you play tournaments? I would love to play tournaments if I had time. You know, besides all the work that we do, like we mentioned, fairgrounds uh, and Oaklawn and Santa Anita and Aqueduct and Gulfstream, you know, I, I you know, besides doing those, two-year-old husky that i'm trying to keep out of trouble dude you got to stop it okay um i will tell you a lot of players approach me because i've been really pushing fairgrounds and <clears throat> for example the set of the product was excellent and it was a really good it was a really good day of racing and i really enjoy those kind we're going to have another one coming up uh, uh you know in a couple of weeks but, you know, but those big days are a lot of fun. Now, do you separate your handicapping from those big days? Do you change what you do on those big days? I don't necessarily change, but the adjustment for tournaments is pretty straightforward. I'm typically, I would say 80% of my bankroll is going to go to pick fives. 
that's just my the general way I play. So, you know, you have some races, you're going to singles, I'm going to go too deep, so I'm going to spread deep. So first thing you have to do is reprogram your mind to land on one horse. And, and that's a way different exercise. And then you have to also factor in the value. Whereas if you're playing a pick five or pick six and you really like a horse, you think the horse is single, you don't care what the price is because ultimately you're, you just want to be alive for that leg. You know, uh, so that's one thing. Another thing I, I did, I've done recently, which, which to me is kind of a hybrid where I'm A, trying to pop a big ticket, but B, trying to think like a tournament player, is in the last week, I forced myself to use one to two singles in each of the rainbow sixes at Gulfstream. And it was, and what I try to also do is not pick uh, something that's su super short price, nothing, even money, two to one, three to one. My first day of the exercise, I singled uh, rainbow six into the final leg, which was a Mark Hassey firster whose dam had produced six stakes winners. And the horse was 10 to one morning line, went off eight to one and won in the last jump. And it was awesome. It was a good ticket. Wasn't expensive, paid well. The next day, I did the same thing, and the one single that I liked, who was value, was 21 to 1 and ran second. So when those things are happening, I feel like I'm seeing the ball well, and I don't want to change the approach. Because sometimes what happens, you have a bad weekend or two, you start making adjustments, and really you need to kind of stick to what works for you. But when it comes to big days, I don't, I don't like to adjust too much. But one, one evaluation I always make on the big days you know as well as I, this fairgrounds was a, ended up being great. I didn't hit it, but the thing paid a monster price, the late pick five. But a lot of times in these big days, especially at Saratoga, is these sequences will chalk badly. So the yeah. first thing I want to do is just look at it objectively and decide, is this sequence going to be a chalky sequence? And if I feel like it's a chalky sequence, I won't avoid it. But I'll, I'll play maybe a $5 base bet, not a 50-cent base bet, and really try to have two or three singles and go too deep once or twice and maybe look for one raise for value. And, you know, sometimes what you can do is you, could take, you can take some chalk and turn it into a good, a good payday. And that happened to me a, a week ago at, in the golden hour. I looked at the golden hour, and it just looked like it was going to be chalk. And, you know, what? I'm playing a $10 ticket. I'm going to go single by two by single by two and end up doing fine. So that that's one thing. And then secondly, if I feel like it's going to be just big prices, then it's a matter of, you know, what kind of budget are you going to need to hit that thing? And, you know, that's that's this weekend fairgrounds. I, I teamed up with one of your gold members, Patrick, and Patrick and I put together tickets. We looked at your sheet. We, we really relied on your sheet because neither of us follow fairgrounds. And ultimately, we didn't have the middle leg, which was that that maker horse. But we had all the other ones. We had all the other prices. And I can tell you, the first leg, and I'm not just saying this to uh, pump up your product, we, we looked at, um, was it past the plate? And, and we're assembling the ticket, and Patrick said, oh, we got to put past the plate in there. Bruno loves him. And I looked, and he was at my apartment. I looked at him, and I said, you know, uh, Patrick, this horse has burned money for me pretty much every race on the form, his last 12 starts. Always looks great on paper, doesn't win, doesn't win, doesn't win. And he looked at me and he goes, Bruno really, really likes him. And we, <laughs> we pull up the sheet and you have him first. And I go, ah, what's what's another 36 bucks? So we put him in there and he, you know, and he wins the first leg. 
And, uh, and the same thing with the last race. I think maybe on the podcast on Friday, you were, put, were touting the DeSormo horse in the feature. And it looked like a fall apart race, but it, it was unclear whether that horse was good enough. And Patrick goes, he's good enough. I love him. Bruno loves him. He makes sense. And we ultimately had him. Unfortunately, we weren't alive. But, um, but the sheet comes in handy. And, and I could tell you, when it comes to fairgrounds, again, when it comes to NHC, I'm not going to really follow fairgrounds this week, but I'm really going to rely on your input because, you know, I, I know you look at the, the works there. I know you follow the, the circuit. And um, that's, that's really the only way you're going to get any kind of substantive evaluation you know, when you're trying to look at eight tracks over three days. Well, the one thing I would tell you that Gulfstream is very tough from the standpoint that if there is something that's working really, really well, you're not going to get any odds on it. You're yep. just not. You know, there's too many clockers there. You know, they're all touting. Um, you know, so, you know, you have to be head and tails above uh, anything else to be able to, um, you know, you just got to be, I guess, the sharpest tool in the shed to be able to come up with something that somebody's not even thinking about. So it takes a little bit more of an internal um uh, I call it my, you know, it's my gut feeling when I look at, 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 at Gulfstream, you know, who's playing games, who's writing where to, uh, who's writing where, uh, you know, because I, I will tell you, I've heard about the, the, the Venezuelan mafia, yep. you know, in Gulfstream, you know, and, and certain riders will ride certain horses because they want to bring the money over to that. Uh, and, and they're betting something else. So, you got to deal with all of that at Gulfstream, and that can be exhausting. Uh, the, the the handicap and handicap on on a standpoint of of who's playing the games. Where I believe over at Fairgrounds, it's pretty straightforward. Um, it, and 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 on that sequence you talked about, where I screwed up is I did not use Lacret. I made a stand that I did not like her debut. She was tiring, and Asmussen had also brought up that he really wanted her to get more seasoning. She was still immature. He would have preferred to have a run in an allowance race. But, you know, in this day and age, all these owners, they want to go directly into stakes with their maidens. Um, Steve Asmussen is a very, very bright trainer, and he knows if he's going to do that, he can't do it a, a month after uh, they broke their maiden. That just doesn't work. And you're just really pressing. So what he did, he gave her time, brought her into that race, and she was able to re-rally and beat Fanny and Freddie, who had, we had beaten with North County on the 26th. Fanny and Freddie was Fanny and Freddie was um, back on three weeks' rest. So I put a lot of stock in what these horses do and come back in a hurry. Yeah, they could have looked great last time out. But you bring a first-time starter back three weeks later, you're asking for trouble, yep. uh, especially in a stakes race. So, But she beat me. And you know what? That play is going to be – that play I'm going to be writing on at 10 times. Yeah, we, but, we looked at it. Patrick and I looked at that race, and we added the Asmus in the, la the very last minute. And I, we looked at it the same way you did. And then I said, you know what? Let me just look at the pedigree. And I didn't recognize the dam's name off the top of my head. Then I we then we pulled it up on Formulator, and we saw that the dam was a monster, and with like well, three yeah, yeah, yeah like right. three Grade One wins, 
And uh, we're like, you know what? Just the talent-wise, this this Philly might just be able to overcome the lack of seasoning. But, and that one thing I will tell you, common knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's not something that people are, you know, that nobody else knows. Yep, yep, yep. Um, that's common knowledge. I like to try to deal in things that are not common knowledge. Like, for example, I knew that that Dallas Stewart, first-time starter, Vinco, in the ninth race, I knew he was very, very talented. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Brian Hernandez got in trouble inside with a horse that was very, very tough to ride. Uh, the six horse, I think it was, or the four. It was the four. And he was forced to check before he got put over the rail. And and the, the interesting part was, you know, he came. I mean, how many lanes did he make up down the stretch? A lot. I mean, if you have not seen the Vinco ninth race of fairgrounds, um, effort. You need to go look at it and, and look at it, uh, the regular pan shot, and then look at the head-on shot. It, it was an absolutely amazing uh, performance. Um, I will say this. that I believe there's better quality of maidens right now quite a few barns than there is at Gulfstream. At Gulfstream, you've got them all in the Pletcher barn. Yep. Um, something to keep in mind because you're going to have a lot of races coming up in the near future for the, the Triple Crown preps and you're going to get a lot of horses coming from everywhere including uh, Fairgrounds. Look what's going to happen this weekend in the Pegasus. You're going to have three horses from Fairgrounds. Title Ready, Chess Chief, and Next Go. We've got all information on all three of them where uh, somebody else uh, no other workout report will have that. So that's something that you need to know. You need to know something that other people don't know. Agreed. Especially so having said that, having said that, um, how do you, you know, for me, it's easy to answer that question, but I like to get other people's thoughts. What kind of decision-making goes into your handicapping with each, each individual track. I mean, do you look at Gulfstream the same way you look at Oakland, or do you look at Aqueduct the same way you look at Santa Anita? No, I, you know, Oakland's interesting because, first of all, you have a lot of really big fields there. And Oakland also, you, you know, everyone's shipping from everywhere. So it's to me, you know, especially for something like the NHC. That's a track. If you're looking to find prices, you should be able to find prices there. I don't remember too many days where that thing will chalk out from beginning to end, where a Wednesday at Gulfstream, you have a good chance that that'll happen. So, you know, for me, it's more about, you know, do I want more certainty? Do I want to try to play a pick four ticket that's got a single or two singles and a couple of two deep races and try to smash a $20 ticket? I'm more likely to play at a track like Gulfstream. For Oakland, I'm I'm trying to really dig, including you know looking for legitimate fifteen to one, twenty to one, thirty to one type of horses. Um, so I I approach every track differently. You know even Aqueduct. You know Aqueduct. I don't know if it's weather or just the track maintenance crew. You know some days it's it's just super speedy rail, and if you just figure out who's the first to the lead, you're going to win. And other days it gets more fair, and because you don't have a lot of the best stock from the top trainers running there, a lot of the lower profile trainers are winning races and those 
trainers are winning races with big price horses. And, you know, so it's completely, I approach every track differently. And, but the, the you know, the goal all that with, with a similar goal, which is always to try to find some value. So, uh, speaking of Aqueduct, we know Andy Serling's a very polarizing figure. Uh, he does a lot of work. He does a lot of good stuff for NYRA. Uh, sometimes, just like any one of us, he can be a little overbearing on certain handicapping things. And, and it's frustrating when you get, you know, when you're trying to, you know, you just want to get a nugget or two, you know, some information that you don't know. And, and basically you get uh, the inside, you know, if, if it was a fair track, repeat it over and over again that doesn't help anybody you know it it, it just doesn't it, it creates a it creates a a culture of, of of horse players that believe the track's not fair so you've got you, you've got to try to figure out what the track maintenance is doing and that's not true and also not I'll, true I'll, I'll take it one step further it's not so straightforward and i'll give you there's a there was a great example i got to try to find the actual race and i'll send it to you on email there was an example of a race about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, where the, 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 ra- the track was an inside speed track, very, very heavy. And so I remember some of the and New York people were tweeting like the next race, how one horse was basically can't lose. And I think he ended up going off a of four to five. Well, the other issue, only issue was it was a lesser class horse who was go. It was a mile, a one turn mile race who was going from six furlongs to the one turn mile. And had, I think, a 10-pound apprentice. And that horse got the lead over the class year four to five shot, went wire to wire, and I think was like 25 or 30 to one. So just because a track's playing a certain way doesn't mean you're going to pick the winner. People people oversimplify bias, and there are some nuances to bias. Yeah, one of the nuances is if you get a horse that's got speed, how do you know that horse is faster than the competition? Just because he has ones in front of his running lines that's not a good way to, to pick out a speed horse Agreed. you know i you know and and you also got to know the jocks too and you got to look at post positions and you may have a horse that doesn't have the speed uh to keep up with a horse in the nine hole but because the horse is in the nine hole and it's a five and a half sprint he's got a gun out of there and sometimes they don't get the lead now they're mired three wide not the same situation and they end up getting beat and people say oh you never got him to the rail he knew the rail was good. He never got him there. He just couldn't get the horse there. Yep. Sometimes the horse has got to get there. Um, also, another thing, if you've got only two horses in the speed of the race, which you have most races in, in New York, you, you really don't have a lot. They like to be reserved. They don't like to uh, – some of these jocks do not like to put their horses on the lead. And you get one horse that gets on the lead, and if you've got a speed horse – that speed horse will gravitate towards the inside. It's not that the inside is better. Plus, if you watch the head-on, they're all three wide off the rail down the backstretch. So it's not the rail. And and a lot of the times you get, well, inside speed one. Well, no, he was three wide down. He was three wide early. You know, off the, he was two wide off the turn. And basically down the stretch, he gravitated towards the inside. It's not a speed bias. It, 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 it's the natural... It's the natural progression of a speed horse that is on the lead. And, and sometimes that gets lost on the public. They just want to believe what they want to believe. They want to hear themselves say that because it makes it easier handicapping. Oh, just, you know, you listen to TVG. The first thing they tell you, who's going to get the lead? That's all they want to know. Who's going to get the lead? And 
I don't I, I don't think I handicap that at all. Who's going to get the lead? I look at the scenario and and go from there. Now, how do you deal with New York when you go out to the NHC? Sometimes it can be feast or famine. Either you get a big long shot or you get a or you get a, a short price. How do you deal with that? I my number one thing is, is unless there's an angle that I love somewhere or, or a horse I really think is sneaky. The number one thing I look at is field size. And so if it's an optional race, the likelihood that I'm going to use Aqueduct, particularly early in the card, is not high. Same thing with Santa Anita. You know, those first five, six races, you know, those are usually very short fields. Where you look at a, a, a track like Oaklawn, you could have 12, 14 horses in, in, a, in a race one, race two. Or even, you know, they're tough races, but even those, you know, midweek, Gulfstream, maiden claiming, bottom level turf races, you know, you, you'll get 10, 12 horses. And, you know, that's where you're going to be able to find a price for us. You know, I won't force force an opinion if I don't have one just because the field size is big. But I will tend to start with looking at the larger field size races. And if I if I see because of a pace scenario or something else that there's a value play in there for the optionals, I'm, I'm going to be leaning towards using those races. When it comes to mandatories, you just play what they give you. I wanted to run some things by you. Um, I put out every month we do our stats and I put it out on our, um, on our newsletter this morning, um, labeled the Pegasus week. And the one thing that was interesting running statistics on how we do really helps me handicap when I, when I, when I, when I get a chance to sit down and play a card. For example, um, what I look for is probability in our top three selections to pick the winner. So, for example, let's go to, to, uh, to Fairgrounds. We hit at a cool 29% with our top choices. So, we're almost 30%. But our first and second choice the top two choices that we saw in our in our selection uh, selection part, they win sixty eight percent of the time. That's amazing. That means almost seven out of ten are our first or second selection. Now, interesting. Top three choice winners are seventy one percent. So it was quite interesting that if they're not first and second. On our sheet, there isn't that many that win that are third choices. Right. Also, you box the top four of our horses in every race. You'll hit half half of the races. We hit fifty one percent in January. We had an incredible twenty five pick fours, fifteen pick fives, and we were averaging thirty one percent of trifecta boxes hit with our top four picks in January as of the 22nd. So when I'm now looking to play fairgrounds, I am looking to zero in on the top two choices. Now let's go to Gulfstream. Our top choice wins at 22%, which I think for Gulfstream, that's pretty strong. Yep. Our top two choices are 42%. Our top three choices are 56%. But here's the, t- the interesting part. In the exactest, 
with a four-horse box, we hit 47% of them. That means almost 50%. We almost hit five out of ten. It's amazing. You know, for exactus. Um, and the trifecta is at 25%. So when I'm looking at Gulfstream, I've got to look at all four top choices. And I'll tell you how it really works on another part. I look at and see on a week. My daughter does it on a daily basis, weekly and monthly. Um, and what I do is she has list, she has them on a spreadsheet separated by first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick. There is a week sometimes that it seems like our fourth picks are winning. So I can I can look at it. Say after you know three days, four days, and say, why am I doing this? Why am I putting the horse fourth? Or let's say John Silva does our Aqueduct, or he does our Oakland, and his four choices are winning. Well, I can say, John, your four choices are winning. What are you doing? Why did you pick that? And, and he'll tell me, well, I wasn't sure. I thought the horse fit, you know. And I said, well, then why'd you pick a fourth? And he didn't really then have an answer. So I wanted to make them aware of what you're doing. A lot of players don't do that. They're not aware. They just deal emotionally with every pick. And sometimes understanding why you – there's times where I picked a horse and I went and bet it, and I'm looking at it going, I, I don't like this. There's something about it later on that, that bothered me. And there's horses that I go in and I just absolutely love and I'm dead right on. So you as a horse player, Pete, you are going to follow more your gut at NHC. How comfortable are you are with, are, are you with that? Much more this, this year. I, cause I'll give you a great example. On day two last year, I had outlined all my plays for the day. And I sat there for the first, you know, three, four races. And I think... I want to say it was Woodbine, and I forgot what the second track was, but I had two tracks that I just I, – I wasn't going to play them for the NHC, but I was betting them just because, you know, you sit there all day and you need action because that's what we do as horse players. And I think I had like three or four races that just, you know, short handicapping, looking to race for five, five minutes, six minutes that made sense, and I made the plays. But – you know, I'm sitting there cashing. The one was seventeen dollars, one was twelve dollars. I'm cashing the tickets, and my and my guys are sitting there saying, "And why wouldn't you use that horse in the NHC?" And I'm like, "Well, I already have my NHC plan in place." So I, I, I'm I'm with you know what you're mentioning. It's more about gut and spontaneity this year for me, and I'm hoping that that's going to work. But I think at the end of the day, when you're playing this game long enough, your your gut's got to tell you when when to really head to the windows aggressively. Yeah, you can't be afraid to lose. Yep. I think a lot of handicappers are afraid to lose. And when they're afraid to lose, they, they make this, they try to, they try to narrow it down and, and, and be too fine. And when you're too fine, you miss stuff. You, you, you think you're going to go for the safe pick. Picking a 25 to one shot has got nothing safe written all over it. Right. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, so, um, unless it was call me midnight, the way, you know, the way we broke it down on, on, on the zoom, you know, I, I was sure that horse was going to run well, yep. you know, and, and here I am, you know, half a mile in and he's 20 lengths back. And I'm like, what did I do here? <laughs> you know, but again, I was a 
turn when he started to make that move. I knew he would run. Um, go over a couple more tracks for you because this okay. is going to help you. Um, at Santa Anita, um, I, I play once in a while. Um, my, my top uh, tracks are 65% fairgrounds, 35% golf green. Uh, but when I'm looking at, at Santa Anita, we are picking 36% top choices. Amazing. And 53% first and second choices. Top three, it's 74%. Exact box for the top four is 45%. However, I have to say, Santa Anita, and this is me. You're, you're a different horse player. You love playing Santa Anita. I sometimes, you know, I look at it and I'll say, my first two picks are five to two and two to one. Our, thir- our third pick is nine to two. The value is just not there at Santa Anita. Yep, agreed. Am I right or wrong? No, absolutely. And and again, like I mentioned earlier, you got to be careful of those those first four or five races. Sometimes the field sizes will kill you. I mean, especially the scratches. And you know, this it, it's hard unless you really like a price in a short field. This it's just hard to make monies in short fields. And you know, you, you got to wait till later in the card. And you know, the, also with Santa, like you, you make a good point. Fairgrounds, you got the only product. Santa Anita, you know, clockers. There's a lot of products, and if there's a horse really working well, the word's out. You know, the value disappears. So it's not a great track to be able to, you know, smash something. And also, you have TVG, right? And TVG basically gets all the workout reports, whether they pay for them or not, which I think is a load of crap. And they talk about them. You know, and they basically give away the store yep. about what they like, the clockers report, this and that. So, you know, there was the infamous day where Todd Shrupp went on TVG bragging how they had all the reports, you right. know, and, and they were all in the know. And I found that to be rather disgusting because I know they had my product, but, you know, but you know what? They don't they don't want to pay for it. Right. You know, and and I I let them hear it. I let them know it. Um, but when you have them doing that, then it, it, it really creates uh, where people start betting because they heard it on TVG. And I've seen horses odds drop when they do that. Yep. Um, so I look at the way I look at racetracks is I am very confident of playing fairgrounds. Uh, Gulfstream, as we do, I just like I like playing golf, Gulfstream, uh, but Keeneland and and Churchill, I'll put my big money in those tracks and fairgrounds, of course, uh, because I have the insight, I have exclusive info. Yep. There's no other workout report. There's nobody else out there that's publishing anything, and if they're publishing workouts, they're getting them from us. Right. So. Is that a strategy that you could use in the NHC? Is playing the races that you think you have an exclusive info at? Yeah, I, I think so. But you know, there, there's a you know, there's 700 great players in that room, and I'm sure you know there's a, a lot of them that are your subscribers. Um, you know, I you just to me, it's about finding something that's not obvious. And, well, I can tell you and, one thing, Pete. I'll tell you one thing. We'll have a, a competitions report. Yep. Yep. What what level of 
fitness is that going to get them? Exactly. Everybody knows the same thing. Right. Plus, I mean, I can tell you, your in your inbox of your email this week, you know, everyone's giving their stuff away. Everyone wants because everyone wants that you know wants a shout out if you win to say you use their product. I think I think I got like in the last two days, and I got seven products I've never used uh, that have my email address saying, "Hey, we'd love you to give you the product." You know, it's available for free. You know, will you mention us? So, you know, it's it's just it is what it is. And uh, can yeah. I tell you a marketing thing that I learned a long time ago? Yep. First of all, I have to say this very carefully. Yeah. Las Vegas horse players very rarely buy anything. Yep. Because they all get it for free. Number one. Number two is going to give your 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 product for free i'm going to use the old six million dollar man line it ain't worth the hill of beans yep because if you have to give it away for free you don't have any any you, don't, you know now we're not talking pps we're talking about workout reports and things like that if people are giving that stuff away for free and everybody's got it it has absolutely no merit Agree. Yeah, it's a paramutual. You're absolutely right. Paramutual game. The information is the same for everyone. You know, the evaluation makes a difference, but there's nothing original. Yeah. A very wise man told me one time, if you charge a fair amount for your product, the word is fair, people will view it as being valuable to them. Yep. But if you cheapen your product by giving it away for free or a ridiculous low price on it, you feel like it's cheap. You know, I, I, I don't want it. That's why, you know, you got a lot of people that don't go to the $1 store. Yeah. I don't. I can't afford to go to, to you know, other stores. Yeah. But the, the, the biggest thing is to be able to give them the tools to be able to do well. And um, if I can go over through a couple of more tracks, I wanted to go over two different tracks that I don't know you'll get to play okay. by Delta Downs and Sam Houston. Um, Delta Downs, we run strictly off the algorithm. Okay. And our algorithm, basically, all it does is, is take a look at all our handicapping factors, and I've weighed them in points and just puts those together. So... It's not a, a who's going to win the race. It's just going to tell you who owns the most handicapping factors, mm-hmm. our handicapping factors, the delta figures, the base figures, the closing figures, hot trainer, hot jockey, uh, workouts are included, post position. So we have a 25% top choice winning. That's a tough track. That's okay. Yeah. First and second choice is 40%. And our top three is 54% in the month of January. So I thought that was really interesting because Delta Downs, I've never sat down to play, but our algorithm out of every four. Um, the other one was Sam Houston. I'm really interested in that because it's sort of new to the I, – I haven't, I haven't been able to adjust it with the points because each track needs adjustment, you know, for each track. Yep. We are only averaging about 20% for top choice. The first and second choices were 33%. Top three was 48%. Um, 
if you're going to use Delta Downs, I would definitely look at our first two picks. Yeah. See if there's a price there. At Sam Houston, I would look at all three top three, all, all the top three picks and get an idea and say, which one is the higher price source? Right. So if you are playing the NHC, if you are playing tournaments, you just don't, don't just say, well, that's his first pick. I'll play that. No, take a look at the odds of the first three or the first two. And select the one with the higher price. Um, I think that's worked out. I think that could be a way to play it. And actually have a chance at tracks that you don't know a whole lot. Because Delta Downs, I can tell you, I can open up a form and it looks like Russian to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually can read Russian Cyrillic. I, I learned once. Uh, but uh, but Delta, unfortunately, uh, Delta is not one of the NHC tracks. But um, but no, I, I you know you can definitely make money there with your product. But I, I just thought it was interesting because our algorithm has been really really good as far as just identifying the horses that have the handicapping factors, right. and that makes it so easy to handicap because then you can look at a horse and say, okay, he's got all the handicapping factors, but look at his past performance; they don't look like it. Those are the ones you're gonna you know you're gonna find out are gonna be the big prices because they have handicapping factors. But they're muddled, they're muddied by, by, the, by the, the past performances that you're looking at. Uh, now, here's the last question for you before I let you go. Okay. Uh, what past, what, are you a DRF guy? Are you a Brisnet guy? Are you a formulator guy? What are you? Okay. I had a long talk about this the other day. 80% of my decision is based on a DRF. And number one, for some reason, and it's not easy to find them nowadays, even in New York City, I like the paper. So I go to the newsstand, I buy it. So I'll do my capping, uh, and I'll get down to kind of an 80% level of comfort. And then let's say if it's like Gulfstream, I'll look at your workouts and I'll make adjustments based on the workouts. I'll also look at your handicapping. And if I'm playing, let's say a pick five, pick six, if it's a day where there's a big carryover, mandatory payout, something like that, I may, I don't always, but I may buy like a thoroughgraph just when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm down to a race that might have, you know, three or four horses. And I can only afford two on my budget. I'll use that last level of analysis to eliminate. But most of the time, it's really DRF and workouts as my, as my primary. I, I like the DRF. Uh, I'm not to say that DRF's better than Brisnet or anybody else. It's just familiarity. It's you know, I'm using it for 30 years, and uh, formulator. I like the product because you you have the the notes in the database that you can keep. So I follow Santa Anita very closely. I can pull up Santa Anita PPs, and, and it'll populate my notes that I've taken from past uh, from past cards. Um, so I'm I'm definitely a, a believer in the DRF. And Peter Renato, we wish you all the luck. We were pulling for you, you and Patrick Grippo, over at the NHC. And um, keep us posted. I might have to put some notes on. Uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll have you write a little blog for us. Or yeah, yeah, I'll uh, notes from back. the first day. Yeah, absolutely, we can do that, definitely. Uh, no, no doubt. All right, go get them, my friend. Thanks, buddy. Take care. And let's get on the line our own, well, Horse Racing Nation's own court reporter, Matt Stahl. Hey, Matt, how are you? And uh, 
Wow, I just read your post. Uh, you did a lot of work following the NYRA versus Bob Baffert uh, for racing public perception um, court case. And I got to say is, wow. Yeah, it's been uh, it, it's been quite the case. Uh, if, if you follow me on social media, I'll plug myself, Mapstall97 on Twitter. Um, we'll repeat that there. at the end. Repeat that at the end. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, you know they start this thing nine thirty every morning, ends around five. And it's just been wall to wall testimony. You know the Naira's been calling the witnesses in this one, but. Um, Today, I don't know, I don't know when people are going to hear this, but uh, you know, today's Tuesday, and Naira spent most of his day just sort of trying to prove, you know, Baffert is a negative thing for racing's public perception. And I hope it wasn't only on the Saturday Night Live skit. No, no, I mean that did oh, get good. brought up. That, that did get brought up in the um, proceedings. You know, the, um, it was her name was. Uh, Cammy uh, Helensky, she's a lecturer at uh, the University of Kentucky, was testifying as to sort of the social contract, um, social operating contract for horse racing, which is, you know, essentially a concept that activities can occur because, you know, the public sort of gives them permission to, not necessarily as a, like she gave examples of like circus elephants and you know greyhound racing as things that have sort of lost their um just social acceptance through the years as they you know have essentially ceased to exist and one of the things brought up was you know the snl sketch of you know if you're a casual person sitting at home you're not a racing fan this is the thing you associate with horse racing is you know bob baffert showing up on Saturday Night Live, drugging horses. Well, but then you would look at Fireman Bill and think that every fireman is, uh, you know, like Fireman Bill. Sure. And I mean, um, Bob Baffert's uh, main lawyer, Craig Robertson, brought that up. He uh, said during the hearing, you know, SNL makes fun of politicians all the time, but, you know, politicians no. don't lose their no. license to operate. Yeah, then you have Mr. Bill, you know, well, let's not get into that. But um, I was, you know, let's put the kidding aside. But there was a couple of things that I wanted to bring up. I thought Baffert's attorney, Craig Robertson, pushing back, as this is your, your words, on the assertion during his cross-examination, suggesting that Baffert had been good for raising throughout his career. He says, quote, unquote, that's not Mr. Baffert's fault that the general public doesn't know the difference between therapeutic race day medication and doping. I yeah. thought that was, you know, I thought, you know, wow. So now not only do you want us to believe you're garbage, but you also want us to believe, you know, that we are stupid and we don't know anything. Yeah. And I mean, you know, horse racing nation does not pay me for opinions, So I'm not, you know, here to talk about, you know, is Baffert a good thing for the game? Is Baffert bad for the game? It's not necessarily up to me. But, I mean, that's that's not the strongest pushback, no. What I thought that was wasn't. interesting also was uh, 
new NYRA brought in a a a um I'm gonna look at it here. Pierre Louis and I'm gonna try to do this in French, Touton, uh yeah, past president yeah. of the European Association for Veterinary Pharmacology and Toxicology. He tested remotely from France. Can you tell us what he said? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, they had a good deal of trouble communicating with him because he had a fairly thick French accent, but I also, there seemed to be some connection issues with his testimony. But essentially, Naira brought him in to just kind of ask, you know, are these levels in, you know, the Medina Spirit Kentucky Derby positive, the Gamine Kentucky Oaks positive, the, you know, all the other positives that they're going back through 2019 in this case, you know, are these levels of the medications found enough to impact a horse's performance? And um, he said pretty definitively they are, you know, and obviously a lot of it he was referring to injected betamethasone which I, you know, Baffert's team has claimed throughout, you know, this was not injected betamethasone. This was more of a, you know, the topical ointment. So there were differences there. But on a base level, he said, yes, most like these medications in this level in the blood would have impacted these horses' performance. Wow. Wow. So um, did you enjoy listening to this? be honest with you it was like i was i was reporting on courts well before i was reporting on horse racing so it feels sort of like coming home in a way so you know it's not it's i'm not going to say it was you know just a barrel of fun my favorite thing i'm going to do this month but it it certainly has not been like it, it it's never not been interesting right yeah i i just i i would have um i would very much recommend that anybody listening go to horseracingnation.com and in the trending section you've got Matt Stahl NYRA tries to prove Baffert is Baffert Racing's public perception and um, I'm not going to ask you what you thought of that because that would be unfair and that's not what HRN pays you for so I will say that I'm looking forward to hearing the comments from people that listen to this and read the story on what they think. We'll put it in their court. Um, I certainly have my opinion. Um, And I'm just going to keep that to myself. Um, I've had my dealings with Baffert and Let's just say he left me with a lot to be desired. So I would be a little jaded, you know, in my opinion. So um, I was just going to leave it and say, Matt, hell of a job. (laughs) Appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I didn't didn't assume that you know, working, covering horse racing would lead me to covering essentially pseudo court proceedings again. But, you know, here we are. Now, what's next for this uh, court case? Uh, They're back at it tomorrow. 
you know, I saw the stuff before saying it's going to last three to five days. Uh, it's five days minimum. And I like, I wouldn't be shocked if it goes in the next week, like they're dragging this thing along. So, uh, but yeah, essentially what's going to happen is uh, it's in front of this guy named uh, Henry Sherwood. He's a retired New York state Supreme court justice. Um, at the end of the hearing, he's going to make a report and a panel is going to review that to, um, sort of make a final ruling as to whether Baffert's going to get this, what I would assume to be a fairly lengthy suspension from New York. Obviously the one that got shut down in federal court was two years. That's going to be interesting. Hopefully it won't, it won't be in the middle of the Pegasus card. <laughs> yeah, the, most, the most horse racing thing ever is like, 20 seconds before the Pegasus goes off, it's like, oh, yeah, we're dropping. Yeah, we have a ruling. Yeah. yeah, the jury has come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is the most one of the most racing things to do. Um, yeah. But either anyway. That or it's, it's either that or it's going to hit at like 4.58 p.m. on a Friday. That's, that's, that's probably my <laughs> prediction. The, they'll drop this the last possible second in a work week. Right. Just as you're leaving to go out and have happy hour, you know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, but Matt Stahl, we'd love to have you back on talk about it once it comes down, uh, the hammer comes down, or or you know. I, and let me just say this to people out there: I truly believe that a track has every right to control who who runs at their track. Yeah. It's their track. It's their money. And if somebody has acted in a certain way. You know, but there has to also has to be rules. You can't just say, I don't like that guy and kick him out. So I'm hoping that we can get some some strict rules that people have to follow. And if they violate those rules, then it becomes very easy. You can't play favorites. Uh, one more question. Was there any discussion at during these proceedings about tests with certain tracks that were swept under the rug. Was there no. any discussion of that? Not, no, I don't, I don't, I don't believe so, no. Okay. Um, and that, I'm not just referring to Baffert, I'm referring to also other trainers. Um, no. Now, I'll, I'll note that they, um, I mean, Pat Cummings on Twitter has made reference to the fact that Naira has like shockingly low levels of positive drug tests over like, I, I want to say, and don't quote me on this because I did not have it right in front of me. So if I get it wrong, I apologize. But I want to say he said over the last four years, like Baffert has had more drug violations than there has been at Naira tracks, which to me is more of a what's going on at the Naira tracks than is a it is an indictment on Baffert. But that yeah, leaves was, you with a. Hmm. Doesn't it? Yeah. So we'll end I mean, this. There's been, there's been reporting on yeah. sort of these laboratories sometimes have issues. So you and I can actually do this together. Uh, that we're going to end this this, sec this segment with you by saying, hmm. Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com.